Welcome to Wah Wonders Why, a companion podcast to smart enough to know better. This episode is titled Plants in Space. A couple of months ago, I put a tweet out asking our listeners if there were any topics they wanted us to cover. Yes, I was farming out the ideas section of our own podcast. And once again, our listeners really came through, bringing up suggestions such as mold or art restoration or even plants in space. This tied in really well with our past space-centered episodes, such as Law in Space and Who Owns Space and Medicine in Space. So here we go with Plants in Space. Space is a very inhospitable place. Human beings really shouldn't be there at any moment. There's a lot of talk about we maybe should just send robots. But human beings like to go to space. And sometimes when we go there, we have to keep cleaning oxygen for long periods of time, and there are chemicals and all sorts of high tech. But is that the only answer? Well, the answer is I, I, I don't know. Uh, Dan, do you know? Do you have any idea? Oh, no, no, no. I, my, I'm, my feet are planted firmly on the ground. Thank you very much. Thank goodness we have an expert in this area. We have Professor Harvey Miller from the University of Western Australia's Plant Energy and Biology area. Hello, Harvey. Hi, how are you? We had a listener get in contact saying, "Do is there any chance, like in the TV program The Expanse, which everyone should watch The Expanse, it's amazing, they have plants on their wall inside a spaceship. And I don't know if it's, if it's the entire air production for their ship, but it's, it seems to be implied that they do use biology in that. And as I said at the start there, at the moment we're at chemicals and scrubbing CO2. So we just want to discuss today about, well, can plants be used to clean atmospheres in spaceships? Is that something we are heading towards? Can we do? And also, can plants survive in space at all? Like, what, what are plants just as stuffed as we are? How do plants handle space? Well, we've known for a long time that you can grow plants in space, so there's been a whole series of um, space missions by the Russians and the Americans and the Chinese, which have actually shown a whole range of examples of growing plants in space. So right now on the International Space Station, they grow plants mainly for experiments to understand how plants grow in space. But you can grow them. And in fact, they even eat some of the plants that they grow on the ISS, mainly for the cameras rather than for, you know, <laughs> for, for the everyday. But it's actively happening. So plants can grow in space. There are various limitations and problems they have. So only certain plants are often taken and grown for a number of reasons. Well, like, a, like an elm would just go straight out the top. Eventually. Yeah, so trees are really out at the moment, right? We're not really growing, <laughs> not going the tree route. So they're largely growing things that can be completely consumed, right? So you want something which you're going to take there, you're going to grow it. You can use resources on the space station to do this. You'd like it to be, so for example, a radish. You can eat the leaves, you can eat the eat the, the root. It's great. There's a lot of interest in other things that they grow. They grow a lot of like microgreens, like herbs and so on. Okay. So you can have some fresh herbs, you can put that on yes. food. That's a really cool idea. Wow. But, but there's a lot of experimentation going as well. So people just doing experiments to understand how plants are in space and what the limitations are. I would have thought the first thing a plant kind of needs to know is what direction up is. That's, what I was that's the direction the leaves need to go. 
Yep. So here's the good thing. Here's, here's some good oil on how plants grow, right? So the leaves of plants detect the sun. So plant leaves, the top of plants, will basically grow towards the light source. Well, that's so even plants, worse because so, those things keep orbiting. So plants don't need gravity to grow up. They grow towards the light source. And you can see that by just putting a light source, put a plant somewhere in the shade, have the light around the corner, it will go around the corner. Ah. But roots do detect gravity. So roots do define where down is. They can't define it by light. So they define gravity as down by having um, little structures inside their cells that actually roll to the bottom of the cells by gravity. Uh-oh. So they know what down is, and so a plant in the ground will actually grow down. Oh, it's like, like its roots down. It's like those inflatable clowns that you bash. Like it's got the weighted <laughs> bit at the. It kind of knows where the bottom of it is. More, think more sort of like little ball bearings, right? That roll to the bottom of the cell. Yeah. Um, so it can tell what down is. Right, so obviously okay. in space, this is something that plants don't get. They don't get this feedback, so they don't realize. There's no down because the, mm. the, these little ball bearings, if you like, are just floating around inside the plant cell as the plant cell is sitting in microgravity. So, therefore, yeah, the roots the roots grow in a very strange direction in space. They grow up and down and left and right and don't know what down is. Yeah, right. Okay. So, now, does that, is that inhibit the... their ability to grow or does that free them <laughs> like a it beard? Frees, it frees them in many ways because they can then use their other kinds of sensors, which tend to follow nutrition. Right, so plants will also grow towards where, where the nutrient is. Oh. So on Earth, they have both things, right? They have both opportunities to both both respond to gravity and also respond to nutrient signals. So they respond to both. In space, they will just follow the nutrition. So with some, you said before, I mean, Dan made a comment about elm trees. We haven't really grown a lot of trees up there. Would it, would the like the is it lignum like the barky bits like the solidy bits of the plant is 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 that going to grow? We just get a gnarled ball of tree, or would you end up with an actual long tree that grows towards the light? Um, you'd get a long tree that grows towards the light. If you, I mean, the people haven't grown trees, so I mean, this is right. <laughs> um, but the smaller plants, which you can kind of take at some comparisons, they will grow. Often, plants put on structure, so all those lignin and cellulose and stuff, which on Earth they need for they need for gravity reasons, right? Because mm-hmm. the plant needs to stand up. In space, they don't need to stand up in quite the same way because they don't have that gravitational impact. So they tend not to put on as much structure. So if you brought those plants back to Earth, they would fall over. Oh, I just think. like humans. Uh, humans we... also have the same problem that if you're in space for a while, when you come back, you can tend to fall over a bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your muscles go away and you pee your own bones out. Logic, right? Plants, yes. I mean, they, they put on that structure in response to gravity, right? So they're trying to maintain a structure that's not going to fall over. If you don't have that gravity, then they don't put on as much. So they do put on some. They just put on mm. less. Yep. Right. Okay. Just to kind of keep keep everything from mushing yeah. into everything else, I guess. Sure. Right. I mean, they're, they're built that way. So, I mean, the thing is, like, mm. plants haven't evolved to live in space, right? So when we mm. take them there, like us, they are new space travellers. They have not spent, you know, billions of years uh, evolving themselves to live in space. In a sense, when we take plants to space, we're seeing the early attempts of plants to cope with this environment. We're not looking at if you could grow plants in space for many, many generations, you would start to evolve some really probably very interesting responses that they have optimally adapted to space for that no one's done that yet. I'm trying to think of plants we should take into space. That'd be really interesting. I like the idea of like a, a large pumpkin, like because pumpkins always get crushed at the bottom by gravity. So if you're floating in the middle of a of a giant round 
container, it would just get rounder and rounder and rounder. And there were, that would be fantastic. And then you could live in it. I'm just, but that's a whole different thing. I don't know if that's possible. I'm guessing it wouldn't stop. I, I was being silly, but now I'm thinking about it. Could you grow a plant? Does a plant have enough structure to be of any use as a space vessel or at least a a way of keeping atmospheres in? Sorry, I just... just, <laughs> I just well, plants, I mean, one of the great things about plants is they're our main sort of sustainable resource on Earth, right, that can keep being regenerated and keep being made. So so the, the sort of the food but also the fibre and material content of plants is fundamental mm. to our lives. We don't understand how we would do life without without that. Equally, you can think of taking those things to space and seeing that as a recycling. Like we're breathing out carbon dioxide, plants building structure, that plant material, effectively, that biomass that plants are. Yes, there's lots of discussion about using that as a feedstock for a 3D printer, for example. You break okay. it oh, down wow. and then you start building things out of plant, right, out of mm. wood or, if you like, cellulosic material that could be useful. So, now, it's going it's, to be taking up the carbon dioxide in the air, though, to make this. So, so you now, now no longer can scrub your CO2 and turn it back into oxygen. You've got, because some of that's being stored up in your brand new 3D printed material, right? So there's this whole area, which they call bioregenerative life support systems, right? Recognizing that you've got a closed system, so you've got a closed amount of of oxygen and, and, and carbon, right? So plants are taking up carbon dioxide and they're also releasing oxygen in that process, mm-hmm. right? They take up carbon dioxide, they, they release um, oxygen. We eat the food and we break down the oxygen and we make carbon dioxide. So we're, we're made for each other. Mm. We do the two sides. Ah, oh, that's romantic. <laughs> and you've got to um, balance those two sides up, right? So, yeah, the, the big advantage of this is that the when we use all of these things, it all comes out the other end of us, right? So mm. all of that great resource comes out the other end and we have to recycle all that back again um, into the plants so that you can eat it again. Mm. So you can... So, I've, it's kind it's, of a permaculture in space. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's the ultimate closed system, right? Except yeah. for what you can bring in with rockets. So. I've seen, not, not in space, but I have seen online, and not too sure how true this is, so I'm going to run it past you, is the idea of having a, a glass container with a biosphere inside and then the pla- and you seal it entirely so nothing can get in and out and they, they leave it for a long time and it just continually grows and cycles through and new things are born. Is that possible in a, in a, in a is that a real thing or is that just a television thing? No, well, it, it, is, it, it is an aspiration, right? I mean, mm. the question is, can you do that with no input? So if you like, you can look at the whole of Earth as a spaceship spinning through time and space, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have that much coming in other than solar radiation. The advantage of the Earth is it's got really big buffers, right? We've got oceans, we've got all these big buffers. The challenge in space is not that it's impossible to do it. The challenge is that you don't have as big buffers, Mm -hmm. right? So you want to turn things pretty immediately around. So if you think about, I mean, people have discussed this in terms of a cup of coffee, right? So a cup of coffee on Earth used to be your urine, right, but about 50 or 60 years ago (laughs) as it cycles through the whole thing. So possibly your parents, right, or your grandparents. Right, I've got to say, yes, yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, in a space system, you don't have that buffer like the ocean, all that water basis and everything else. So Mm. what you want to do is you want want your, your cup of coffee to have been urine a few hours ago. 
Right. It does add a certain level of taste and 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 and. So yeah. hang. See, so, so you have all yes. these filtering systems. So you constantly, so you have a set amount of water, and you're constantly cycling that through the humans back out again, mm. um, purifying it to provide back to the humans again. So just just a, a horrible thought. We talk about plants in space and making system, but now I just have this, this image in my mind of just opening up a panel and there's also all these kidneys stuck in the wall and, and they're passing the water through, just kind of filtering it through all the kidneys. Sorry, this is where my mind went to. Let's not do that. Whatever, Nasser, if you're listening, let's not have a wall full of kidneys in the future, please. That would upset me greatly. That would just be, yeah, I'm, already, I'm winging myself out now. So the great thing is, right, because we, we can look, think about a kidney as a great way of cleaning up water right, mm. in the human body. But actually, a plant is an awesome way of doing oh. exactly the same thing. Oh, thank goodness. But plants are also, you can grow them in um, very low-quality water, right? And they will, what comes out the top, what transpires out the top of a plant, and indeed the plant material, is entirely clean. You can, we do it all. We grow plants in compost, right? And we convert that into something we want to eat. We don't want to eat compost. Yes. We don't want to eat manure, right? But we're quite happy to eat the plant that arises from that. And indeed, the water that comes off that plant and the water that the plant can clean, it's a great way of... of okay. So we don't need kidneys, thank goodness. We can have some, we can have some nice yeah. plants in there. Some That's fantastic. Then. Much more pleasant than the wall of kidneys. Yeah. So, <laughs> so some plants are, very, are described as being very hardy and some as quite fragile. Are the, what, sort of, what sort of elements in space are plant hardier or more fragile? Yeah, so... There's a number of things. So one thing, one of the big issues in space with um, with plants is um, oxygen availability, which is interesting, right? Because we don't think of that as a big problem on Earth. Plant roots, for example, in a space context, when water doesn't drip off, right, when there's no gravity and there's water mm -hmm. constantly clinging to every surface, you have some problems. And so the ideal plant for space is one actually which can grow in stagnant water on Earth because that's a little bit like what space is. It's difficult to get the water away from the surface to have roots without water covering their surface all the time once it's there so, so like a swampy like a swampy plant some sort of yeah, like, a, like a bayou plant of some sort like a lot of the aquatic plants are, are, are being seen as good targets for this because they can grow in stagnant water oh, yeah. um, <laughs> there's water on them all the time yeah exactly they sit in water right mm. so they're, they're a good target like Being a venus flytrap like having a plant that's like a venus flytrap from space that's never done anyone any uh, given it concern to anyone, especially any <laughs> dentists, right? That's right. That's right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, things like duckweeds, right, are constantly being used and thought about as potential great targets for this. But even things like, you know, radishes and lettuce and all these sorts of things, if you can grow them well in hydroponic systems on Earth, mm. there's a good chance that they're not going to be too bad um, in a space environment. Right now in Australia, if you can grow lettuce and sell it cheaply, you'll, you'll be a king or a queen, basically be one of the <laughs> richest people on, on the in the country. No one can get lettuce at the moment. It's amazing. So have you got any feeling for how, how much do you reckon it would cost to get a lettuce to the International Space Station? <laughs> I'm, um, it would probably I'm, double the cost of the lettuce at this yeah, point. At least double. Yeah. Uh, so it's at least... So, maybe. So it's probably around ten to $15,000 to take a lettuce to the International Space Station. <laughs> Yep, sure. about double. So, about double. But about I, double what we, you can get. But we just want to take we just want to take a seed to the space station, grow a lettuce, and then drop it back to Earth. That wouldn't cost, surely that wouldn't cost as much because just gravity does that job. You just have to make sure you it doesn't burn up on the way in. I think, I think that, that making it not burn up on the way ah. is where the money comes in. Yep. Damn, well, also in order to grow the lettuce, you need to take up all the water. So, you, like, if you if mm. you're you're still taking up the same amount of mass. As you're bringing uh, back, because again, right. closed system. Yeah, 
Okay. So we, okay. So our, so our space lettuce industry is not going to not going to kick off even at the moment unless we, unless we like it doubles or triples in price for lettuce even more. Everyone keeps telling us to eat cabbage, and I keep saying no, stop it. This is a whole different point. Stop telling us to eat cabbage. It's not lettuce. It's just because it looks vaguely the same. They're not the same thing. You can't put cabbage in what you put lettuce into. It's ridiculous. I won't so, stand for it. Sorry. Soil. Sorry. I'm, I'm okay now. I'm back off now. So you're, you're saying that hydroponic setups are great, but do they have much soil in, like, the space station to do these experiments with? So they don't use soil. So they basically use hydroponic systems or little, like, pads, right? Because, again, in the space station, so it's a different question of in the space station versus, say, on the moon or on Mars, right? Both the moon and Mars has gravity, so that helps a lot, you know, in having more traditional hydroponic systems where water flows and drops to the bottom and, and so on. In microgravity, you have this problem that water doesn't move in quite the same way. Pumps are tricky under those circumstances. Um, so they often have these absorbent kind of pads. So plants are growing in these, um, and it's completely artificial substrate, if you like. It's not soil. Okay, so we've got the idea of plants they can be grown in space. There's a closed system. There's not a lot of large buffer. So if mistakes happen, they're going to die pretty quickly. It's going to be hard to continue going. So I think now is our time to answer the listener question of in the expanse, they seem to have plants on the wall. That seems my feeling that I'm talking to you, Harvey, is that that's possible, just difficult. Oh, it is totally possible, and it's and it, if you, it's actually not far away from reality in the sense that oh. there is a great desire of, of different space agencies to say that we need to solve the plants growing in space routinely problem, mm. because actually the the current mission to Mars, like so, the Artemis project that the mm. Americans have initiated, which is a serious project, and they're already investing, you know, hundred billion dollars in it. They're going to be investing trillions in it until mm. twenty forty. They can't grow. They can't go if they can't grow plants, <laughs> right? Because of the risk of not being able to come back. That's a logistics question. Like if you send four people to Mars, you probably have to send about three ton of dry food with them on that journey because it's three years, right? Mm. And this is so it takes a bunch of months to get there, but you've got to stay on Mars for 18 months before you come back just because of the way the solar system works. and Is this assuming leave. that all four people make it to Mars? This is assuming all four people make it to Mars. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Because if, if they the, don't, not only are there fewer people to feed, but there's more food. Indeed, and, and there's movies about this, right? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> But obviously they're planning for success, not planning for failure. So that's the requirement as a plan. And so on that basis, you have to grow plants in space. There's actually two reasons you have to grow plants in space. One is clearly this food question, right? But there is another far deeper question of why you need to grow plants in space, and that is that people don't like operating for very long periods of time without green growing things around them. We Mm. are built to live in a world with plants. Some people can survive for very long periods of time with no interaction with plants and plant material. Other people can't. So there is a deep psychological need to grow plants in space because otherwise you might find people just opening the hatches. We've actually talked to the podcast before about this. Forest talk, um, bathing. Forest bathing, yes. And, we, and it sounded like madness. And then it's actually a real psychological uh, a way of help, helping people deal with their psychological trauma is letting them wander around in forests. And it has, it has real effects. So, yeah, it's human beings, even astronauts being the best of the best of the best, they're still people and they'd still require greenery around them on some level. 
I mean, solitary confinement at the end of the day for people, just the absence of people, it's the absence of a whole range of other components as well. And, you know, it's effectively torture for people to put people in completely separated away from the natural world for long periods of time. So there's also a desire to do that. Um, it's a natural part of life. It's going to be an important part of potentially this bioregenerative life support system. So something that you need to convert that CO2 to, ox to back to oxygen if your fancy filters and chemistry breaks down. What we know already from the ISS is that the sort of the monthly visits that they get from SpaceX rockets at the moment, which brings fresh food, is mm. a really massive highlight for astronauts because the rest of the time they're living on packets, which they're rehydrating in, well, you know what they're rehydrating it in. in coffee, yes. Yeah, we talked about it before. That's right. <laughs> How many plants and what sort of plants do you need to keep one human being alive? Good question. Often on Earth, right, when we look around, we imagine that it must be a huge number of plants, right? Because we have so many. We have a lot of plants and we don't have very many people. So we imagine that maybe everyone needs a forest or something, <laughs> right? But it's not really true. I mean, we have a big atmosphere, right? And we have a lot of churn of this carbon dioxide to oxygen. And in fact, humans are not doing most of it. So most of the respiration that's happening on Earth is, is not humans, right? Mm. It Microbes, bacteria. So many bugs. Bugs, bugs everywhere. I mean, the cows are using more oxygen than yes. we are. Right? So it's not the people, right? If you have really rapidly growing plants and they're doing a great job and they're photosynthesizing really effectively and they're making lots of oxygen, one person can actually be sustained by 10 square metres of rapidly growing plant material in terms of their oxygen requirements. Okay, so three three meters by three meters, or a bit more than that, ten square meters. Is that is that a foliage, or is that like a, a big shit, like a single big leaf, or is that including no, no, it can the be gas? It's just just dense okay. foliage in 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 the in the area of about ten square meters. An X Y problem rather than a it's not a cube, right? Mm. Right. <laughs> so one of the fascinating things when you think about this with the ISS, right? So the ISS doesn't rely on this at all. Okay, we completely rely on chemical based processes and taking up bottles of oxygen, right, mm. that come from Earth okay. every every month. That's because there's only about a square metre of space, maybe two, about one square metre of space, which is actually used for growing plants on the ISS, and it's really just for experiments and not very much, right? You'd only need about 10% of the ISS to be plants, and they wouldn't need to take oxygen to deal with the number wow. of people. So okay. you could, I mean, you could add, and you could even start adding new components to the ISS or something. It's next, to, and, and go. This is the oxygen-making thing, and and screw it on the, the side. Arborium. Yeah, but yeah. yes. <laughs> so it's not crazy, but having said that, I mean, it might not sound crazy, but when, if you if you went to a space to to the ISS people and basically said, "Hey, we want to use ten percent of the ISS for growing plants," they'd say, "Well, actually, that ten percent is being used for something else." Thanks very mm. much, right? So as you say, you would need additive capability, um, mm. but this is planned. Right. So coming soon, NASA and other agencies are putting up vehicles into space, which will be in near Earth orbit to test a variety of the different components that they're going to use for Mars. And one of those is going to be growing some plants. So there will be a fair bit of new plant growing space in orbit around mm. Earth in the 2020s. Could it be algae? Would algae be better than than like a, a leafy plant? And the other thing is, could you build it into the infrastructure? You know, I, said, I talked about it, you know, a, a cavity of kidneys. Could you pull back something and then all the plants are just growing quietly in a cavity that goes around all your living areas with small air, just so the air can come in and cycle through? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have like a forest. I mean, that's a lovely idea in front of you, but it, have them all hidden away like all the other electronics are hidden away. 
You could, but it's interesting, right? Because people need light, and so do plants, right? Oh yeah, so why, not use, <laughs> light. why not use the um, the light that you're using for the people to walk around and see in to also mm. be growing plants rather than hide them away? That's why you're the professor. You professor, like I got it. Somewhere you don't want them on show, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, look, I mean, but the prospect as well of actually having space which is not human occupied. So, for example, plants can actually grow. They don't need a full atmosphere of pressure to grow because plant cells have actually got a cell wall. They're quite robust. You can reduce that atmosphere to a lower level and they will still grow as long as you keep the carbon dioxide concentration and so, and, and so on at an appropriate level. So there is a prospect of actually growing plants in space in environments which operate at a lower than atmospheric level, a third or a quarter or a half, right, of atmosphere. And there'll be a variety of reasons why that will be valuable because keeping everything at atmosphere is obviously costly these things so there's a there's a chance that you could have your space farm in an area that wasn't full atmosphere it's not just also atmosphere the the cost of the oxygen but even like reinforcing it so the whole thing doesn't explode if you have lesser pressure you don't need to have as thick a wall or, or as many struts holding it all together i mean it can be can that may be cheaper yes possibly you could cope with other events and maybe if all your plants died or half your plants died it's less of a problem than if people die so you might think mm. that it's a bigger risk you're prepared to take Especially if you had a couple. If you had one and it was you were completely relying on it, then you need two lungs. Yes. Yeah. yes. Nature's nature's done it very well. Okay, so the answer is yes, we can. Uh, well, we have the technology. It's just a matter of doing it, and to to and it's, it actually sounds easier than I thought it would be to have plants make the oxygen for us. It's something we can actually do, and it has health benefits, and it has psychological benefits, and it's something that we're definitely looking to, as you said. Something you said before, though, I want to kind of go more into that. You talked about the moon and Mars. Now, we don't have the same problems as gravity, so that's a good thing. What are the problems, as with the Artemis mission, if they start trying to turn regolith into the, on, on the moon into moon soil, covered moon soil or something like that, to grow things, what are the problems they're going to find? I mean, it's not soil to start off with. It's, well, it's rock. It's not soil. Yeah. <laughs> it is not it's soil. Not soil. Yes. It's... Uh... It's 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 broken glass, right? <laughs> From in reality, and it's just silica-based sort of stuff. Yeah, well, there's a lot of problems with regolith in the sense of it's, it's silica-based. It's got minerals and nutrients and stuff in it which are not the things that plants want. So it's a pretty inhospitable material uh, for plant growth. But even when you're looking at the moon and at and Mars, a lot of the planning that's going in is not so much thinking about growing it in the regolith, but saying you want hydroponic-based systems that are based in a solid structure sitting on the moon and Mars, right? This sounds interesting to people, but if you start thinking about all of the vertical farming and the controlled agriculture and that we do right now on Earth, so not done in soil. So doing this at scale for food production for people is really is a no-brainer. It's perfectly mm. possible. We do it on Earth. We could be doing it on, on the moon and Mars. So we like to we like to have the idea of of the the farmer on the land and she's got a hat on and a and a straw out of her mouth and she's digging in the ground. But really, that's not how. I mean, yes, a lot of farming is done that way, but it doesn't have to be done that way. There are other ways to it do these things. Doesn't have to be done that way. And I think we're you know we're recognizing post COVID as well that the limitations of doing that way, having all of your food production in one particular place with great great land, right? Mm. And then having huge transport processes. I mean, we saw recently in, in Perth how just one train line being down has a massive impact on the West. So trying to actually make locally locally grown food grown in urban areas, this is a trend around the world. 
it's not mm. a huge trend in Australia because we've got a lot of land and we've got big agriculture, which is, you know, outside. Um, mm. But in lots of places in the world where they don't have that and they want food security, then they are looking at controlled environment agriculture as a way of actually providing that for the future. And not just land issues. I mean, obviously geopolitical problems with suddenly two countries get angry at each other and 40% of the world's wheat can no longer be distributed to poor countries. This is an so issue. Very specific hypotheticals. Hey, crazy, I'm just, look, I'm sure the world's not that crazy, but it's a big issue for, for countries, for everyone, but especially for poorer countries. Yeah, so look, it's a huge issue. And I mean, that whole question of making food independent of all of those barriers would be would have a whole range of unexpected consequences. Some of them fully good, some of them may not be good, but um, there's a big drive to do that. One of the other drives for doing that is it's quite difficult to do agriculture outside and really know what your inputs and outputs are. So there's a big debate that happens at the moment about the carbon footprint of agriculture and what zero carbon for agriculture would look like, or even zero anything else for that. And one of the difficulties when you do it on the, on the outside is that it's very difficult to control for everything. If you do agriculture inside, you can control for everything. You can completely account for what you're actually doing. Um, you know what the inputs are. You can you can measure the outputs. You know what the system is. And so there is a future where people will actually require or desire or insist on the food they eat to know what the consequences of this are for the planet. And current mm-hmm. agriculture, it's actually quite difficult to calculate those things and explain that. Controlled environment agriculture, even though it's more expensive in reality at the moment than other kinds of agriculture, depending on what you're growing, it has this huge potential to be something that we can completely control and can account for in terms of its inputs and outputs. And over tens of thousands of years, human beings have been modifying, I mean, just by breeding different plants. I mean, all these plants that actually come from the same plant, we, we consider them different. The flower or the stalk or the whatever the parts what I'm trying to say here is that it may sometimes people get worried about, you know, genetically modified foods. And that's a whole conversation for another time, I guess. It's also something we'll probably get used to as time goes on of, of growing a wall of wheat or whatever, you know, a, a, a creeping vine that's in your house or at least in the local uh, the local food vertical farm that uh, you will access and it will have a lower transport cost and a lower impact on the environment, hopefully. There was a great little um, book that was written some years ago talking about the sort of genetically modified plant history, I guess, and how Mm. it's played out and raised the idea, what if the first genetically modified plant was broccoli that tasted like chocolate? (laughs) That was the first one that they released, which is completely doable, right? But if that that was the first one that they released, what would the world think about genetically modified plants as opposed to the first ones they released were really great for the producers and really great supermarkets and, and shelf life and all these sort of things, right, which is a valuable part of the process and does make food cheaper. But the but the, the person who was consuming it didn't necessarily feel like they were the beneficiary. I think the history of, of, of plants and people is that we're all prepared to eat things with a degree of risk associated with anything we eat um, mm. as long as it tastes good. Or as long as we're hungry so, enough. If mm. you're hungry enough and it tastes good, you'll take all sorts of interesting risks. Cheese has gone all blue. I'll eat it anyway. My fellow astronauts got all blue. I'll eat it anyway. So Mars, once again, grow it. You can you can just hydroponically, or just hydroponically grow, and they probably would. Do you think it's possible that we'll ever will, like ship soil to Mars and grow things on Mars in the soil itself? If you know, with or is that just because the lower atmosphere, it's one percent. That's much much lower than the thirty percent you were talking about, fifty percent. Mm-hmm. But do you think? Is that something we should be working towards or even vaguely possible or would we would always just grow hydroponically on Mars? 
there's never a never, right? But you would actually have to, the reality is that plants aren't adapted to these environments, even vaguely. Mm. You would really be needing to either figure out how you can breed plants for those environments, or you'd be heavily genetically engineering plants to optimize those for different environments. But at the moment, I don't think we know what a plant growing on the Mars surface would look like. And the, the immediacy is something of actually trying to get hydroponic plants to grow on Mars. And it may be that in the future, that's actually what we do on Earth as well. And so the whole idea of growing plants in soil outside mm. with all the uncertainties of that may not be our children or our grandchildren's perspective on how you make food for people anyway. That's Maybe really- you just chuck a bunch of different seeds out there and see what it takes. It's got to be able to grow to take, right? So, um, like but, I see, I see grass and like dandelions bed into concrete. Surely they'd have a good shot at it for a couple of days on Mars. Temperature range on Mars is pretty extreme. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's very high CO two, so they have some CO two. The oxygen's pretty limiting on Mars, and there's no water that's appreciable in most of the areas we're talking about. So, mm. plant life doesn't operate under those circumstances as we know it at the moment. But look, I mean, you made a comment before about algae and so on, and obviously mm. many of these single-cell photosynthesizing organisms, algae and others, could well be the first inhabitants of places that we don't quite understand now. A plant structure, as we know it on Earth, has a lot of dependencies, which may not be possible there, but certainly some of those other things could possibly be living already there, right? yeah. as we discover. And as we go there and start interacting with the water sources that are on different moons and so on, even in our solar system, the chance of us finding something alive there is something yet to be yet to be found. Hasn't been proven, but not impossible. I love to hear scientists say that. That's the best. You, like you would have been exposed to all the different plants that they've tried to grow in space. Have there been, have there been any that just were really surprisingly bad at growing or really surprisingly <laughs> surprising at growing? I don't think surprising, really. I think there's things which are which people would like to grow in space. So one of the difficulties in space, actually, isn't the growing of green leafy material. You can do that, and different plants will grow at different rates. One of the difficulties has actually been getting things to flower in, in, in space and provide right. fruit, right? Because many of us, these surveys have been done, right, of, of, of US astronauts to basically say, what would you really like us to be growing in mm. space? And two key things people would like is tomatoes okay. and strawberries, so these are fruit that they would like fresh that would be great if you could basically put You don't need a tree to grow them? Like um, it's not like lemon. That's right. Lemons yeah. are a problem. Yeah. Um, so we're talking <laughs> about things that you that, that you can grow on small bushes, right? Like small yeah. little things that can grow in a pot. Bananas. We just, just Yeah, sure. no bananas. Nah, drat. But again, you're gonna make your banana probably in space by three D printing it from something that tastes like banana. <laughs> but actually came from something else. I like the way you think. <laughs> but these tomatoes are hard to, they're not working yet? Um, no, they are, but that's. But the, the biggest challenge is the things which need to flower because flowering time is something, with, there's a lot of work that's been done on it to actually work out how to, but plants make that decision to flower, right? Growing just sort of happens when the seeds get going and that's, that's, the, that's the basic state, the vegetative state of a plant when it's just growing mm. leaves. There's a, a switch, and different plants will do that. And some plants, of course, you can grow, and they do, don't flower. We all experience that. You hear it endlessly on gardening shows. My such and such is not flowering, right? Because that last little piece of the actual flowering and producing fruit is has a degree of uncertainty, even if you've got a nice bushy green plant. Oh, so wow. these are areas where having that consistently happen in space and being able to provide that as a 
fruit product at the end is a challenging area and something that people are still working on. But they have, they have um, had things up there and they have had them produce. And if you can make these plants flower on command, then that's probably going to come in handy back on earth. Absolutely. And there's a lot of work. If you look at a lot of the controlled environment agriculture, where you have control of the light, you have control of the temperature, and you can have control of how long the light goes for, then can influence these in a lot of different ways. So the quality of light, how long daylight is given days, all of these things are often triggers for plants for flowering. So we already in controlled environment agriculture to provide tomatoes, for example, on earth, a lot of that control is already being done by imposing these different conditions to get plants into an optimal position to flower. Plants respond to whole polychemical trigger, triggers as well as light triggers and temperature triggers and length of day triggers. So plants mm. are amazing in the sense that they, they track seasons and understand where they are in the season by the length of day, and this impacts when they flower. So. Someone's like listening to this podcast going, oh, everyone's wasting so much time and money trying to grow rhubarb in space. Now, what's the point? I think Dan made a very good point there. I just wanted to bring back it's this will also transfer back to Earth, these things that we learned to make plants work in space properly and make these biomes that can go on will have profound effects on agriculture on Earth as well. All of the space ventures we've ever been on, any, in fact, not even just space, right? Any great exploration that humanity has done over centuries, heading off in boats across the ocean to mystical places with lots of gold for the king or queen, um, <laughs> All of these involve a huge amount of innovation in that process, and all of that, people brought back that innovation to do the day-to-day the, the -day questions that, that, that plague people. Also so, tomatoes and strawberries. And potatoes. That's right. Absolutely. And th there's nothing that induces human creativity than being in a small, dark box somewhere on another planet waiting to die. <laughs> you will come up with some amazing stuff, right? And when that knowledge is transferred back, it will be a benefit um, to people. This is this is just the history. This is why, unfortunately, war is a great way of innovation, mm. right? Because people are desperate and people will try things which they haven't tried before in order to progress. And so space innovation is all about that. It's about going out, trying to do something not that has a little bit less waste, which you might think on Earth, oh, yeah, let's try and decrease the waste by 10%, right? You go to space and you say, there has to be no waste. <laughs> That's the goal. Goal is extreme. And that will change thinking and change what we do on Earth. So going to space is a little bit like going to war, except against the universe, the uncaring universe. Could make that analogy. <laughs> but it, it's really just it, it's, it's tapping into the human desire for discovery and to find a new frontier. That's how humans innovate. And so we... We see that in many areas, and it's going to be true in the way we make rockets and the way we, we, we do transport because of how all of these things are going to impact back on Earth and how fast you can do things, how fast you can move around the planet by how fast you have to move in space to do things. And it will also be true in food production that we'll figure out how to do zero-waste agriculture and we'll figure out how to grow things in controlled environments so that everyone can be growing their food in a local area and not have to do big transport processes. So. Professor Harvey, thank you very much for your time telling us all about plants in space. It was really exciting. What's the one thing you wish people would understand about plants, plants in space, plants on Earth, that they just don't get? So I think the key thing about plants is to recognise that they grow by taking carbon dioxide out of the air. So for thousands of years, we didn't know this. For thousands mm -hmm. of years, people thought that plants grew by eating soil. 
That was the prevailing view because it looked what was going on. So there was this hidden reality that plants were actually taking this carbon dioxide out of the air to build things. And so that sort of invisible carbon that's sitting yeah. in the atmosphere becomes visible carbon through what plants do and really drives what we do. We can't really imagine a world without plants. We can't really operate in the world without plants. And so, yeah, what we would like to have people think about when we think about going to space or even finding solutions on Earth, recognising what's actually happening inside plants. We know nowhere near as much about it as we know about the human body, <laughs> and yet it's so fundamentally important for our ability to shape the Earth in the way that we might think we need to, to do that, to cope with our industrial activities as well, but also our aspirations to, to go to space. Mm. I mean, when you're thinking about going to the Moon and Mars, it's all very well to think about rocket boosters and control panels and entry trajectories. But once you're up there, the day-to-day, the mundane things, eating, drinking, what's your next meal, how are you going to go to the toilet, actually become the important things you have to solve. So solving those problems, the what's for dinner problem, is mission critical for where we want to go, and it's important for how we think. We we have a degree of plant blindness because we're out by green, but actually it defines our past and it'll define our future. I hope, Harvey, that one day Dan and I can share a tomato and a strawberry with you somewhere deep in space. Thank you for your time. Most welcome. Professor Harvey is part of the International Space Centre, a University of Western Australia initiative that is bringing together a broad range of different areas, such as engineering and physics, which you kind of expect, life sciences, social sciences, and even the arts. All these areas are very important for the future of space. So if you're interested in anything to do with space and in Australia, go and have a look at the International Space Centre. The links will be in the show notes. Find it amazing with all our ingenuity and all the clever things we have to build. Nature has been doing it for billions of years. And the answer seems to be, don't try and build it ourselves. Just copy what nature's done and modify it slightly. That seems to be the best way to go. Big thanks to Professor Harvey Miller from the University of Western Australia and the International Space Centre. If you have any suggestions on what you would like us to talk about on the podcast, you can contact us at SE2KB on Twitter or, of course, Greg at smartenough.org. Be excellent to each other, ladies and gentlemen, and we will see you in the next podcast. Bye. Bye.